The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Up Close with Chris Tinney. Don't forget to visit ChrisTinney.com for more information about today's topics and download the new Spread Peace app that makes it easy to take action and advocate for the causes you care about. And now, here's your host, Chris Tinney. Welcome back for another issue, another episode of Up Close. And today we have a great show for you. I, uh, I've never had so much mail on both sides of a topic I haven't had so much milk, period, as I have on this show. So I, I'm anxious to get to it. But first off, I just want to really thank everybody that's been sharing last week's show from the non-GMO project and uh, the show before that with the CEO of Surf Riders that's cleaning up our beaches. Uh, again, don't forget, this hour is a place for us to come together, but it doesn't stop here. I want to give you actionable tools, thoughts, things you can go out and take action about right away. And even if it's something as simple as sharing on Facebook. Matter of fact, today we're going to be talking about Black Lives Matter, the Black Lives Matter movement. I've got two great guests on the phone to share with you who have been involved with the movement. One of them, uh, a journalist, who I'll introduce you to in just a minute, another activist on the front lines from the Unitarian Universalist Church. But I got to tell you guys something. I'm shocked at the things that were written on the page and the emails I've got. First of all, I've had people, you know, in all caps, all lives matter. You're advocating for a terrorist group. What are you doing? And, and I would come back with dialogue is always good. In my book, dialogue is always good. And, and, and in this issue, I'm going to tell you, as a white guy, I was uncomfortable with it. That's why I decided to have a show on it. Those are the best shows, right? The things you're uncomfortable mm-hmm. about. So I decided that I was going to do a show on this because I didn't understand why people would be offended when people said all lives matter. I, I didn't understand the what happens every day and i'm and, and you know we'll get into some of the things in structural uh, that are structurally influencing this movement but today we have on the on the line with us kenny wiley who's the unitarian universalist world senior editor and the director of faith information at the prairie unitarian universalist church in parker parker colorado he's wrote articles that I've read in the Boston Globe, the Houston Chronicle, and, and Sky Magazine, and he's been on the front lines of the movement, and I loved some of the things he wrote, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read this to you real quick, because before you guys start saying, and we are going to talk about why All Lives Matter is offensive to the people that are involved in the movement. Get over it. I hope you open, you know, listen, open your heart and find out why, because I was educated. But just to show you, this is one from one of his articles that he wrote explaining to people that, gui- this is his writing, guided by that enduring unfulfilled promise of the belief in the inherent worth and dignity of every person. Ours is a faith that is said or worked to say to those who have been marginalized, you are a woman and your life matters. You are gay and lesbian and your life matters. You are transgender, and your life matters. You are bisexual, and your life matters. You have a disability, and your life matters. You are not loved as a child, and your life matters. You struggle with depression, and your life matters. 
Right now, he writes in this article, we are being called by our ancestors, by our principals, by young black activists across the country to promote and affirm you are young and black and your life matters. You stole something and your life matters. I have been taught to fear you and your life matters. The police are releasing your criminal record and your life matters. They're calling you a thug and your life matters. Our ancestors, principals, and fellow humans are calling on us to promote, affirm with deeds and works, Black Lives Matter. I love that when I wrote that. That's why I reached out to, to him and Joshua to be on this show, because it's obvious that he has care and love for all lives. And yet, you'll find that he's a, a, a writer in this area and active on the front lines. And I want to I talk to him a little bit about what's happening as churches get vandalized, as they put up signs around there. And, and we also have on the line Joshua Eaton. If you haven't been to joshuaeaton.net, I suggest you do that. You can even do that. If you're listening to the recorded version, like most of you are, there's a link right below the uh, podcast uh, that you're looking at. Or if you're on iTunes, it's right there. Uh, it, Jonathan has written on humanitarian issues, national security, and on the Black Lives Movement article that I read about that. Matter of fact, one of the articles was about that vandalism and, and what churches are facing when they actually get behind this movement. His writing has appeared on the Washington Post, Boston Globe, the Christian Science Monitor, Al Jazeera, Salon, Global Post. Okay, I'll keep going here. <laughs> he holds a, a Master's of Divinity from Harvard University, and he's on the phone. Gentlemen, welcome to Up Close, and thank you so much for being with us today. All right. Thank you, Chris. I'm well, really excited to chat. I am. Yeah, I am. I, I'm going to jump right in here. And I guess maybe, um, Kenny, you're the first one. I'll, I'll direct this at you. And then, Joshua, since you've been writing and, and out there and seeing a lot of different parts of this movement, I wanna, I, I'll ask you, too. But I want to hit this right up front because I had all sorts of posts on the Facebook page, you know, people cussing me out, basically, and saying all lives matter, you're, that somehow okay. – I was I was disrespecting them, and it was always a white person. I, and I'm not going to get you know, <laughs> I don't know what that means, but I'm just telling you that maybe they just I, I know that I lacked the uh, the experience to really understand it until somebody took the time to explain it to me. So, Kenny, maybe you can tell me um, first of all, share with our listeners a little about who you are and what you do in the world, and and how you came sure. involved in, in the Black Lives Movement matter, and and you know why there's this uh, energy around. Uh, people wanting to say all lives matter and why some people in the movement find that offensive. Sure, Chris. Well, thanks a lot for having me. And so, as you said, uh, I'm a religious professional and journalist uh, based in the Denver area. And, you know, I'm a lifelong Unitarian Universalist. So I'm a, I'm a black man in a mostly white faith and, you know, feel like my faith and its principles, its religious values have brought me to this moment to, um, to affirm that, you know, I grew up pretty, pretty affluent, frankly, in the Houston area as a black kid with a lot of um, economic privilege, and yet I had this real fascination with uh, the civil rights movement, and I was kind of taught what a lot of us were taught, that, you know, that we, that we won, that Rosa Parks and Dr. King and Ella Baker and a few others, they won freedom for us, and sure, things are different than they were 40, 50 years ago, um, and that should not be ignored. But what I didn't realize that, you know, my parents uh, have law degrees and that, you know, a few of us advanced, you know, folks like President Obama, and the rest were left behind, and they were left behind not really by accident, that um, it wasn't some deficiency on their part, but 
but a sort of this idea that we can all pull ourselves up by our bootstraps, even though we have unequal opportunities. And so I really, you know, believe that everybody is important, that everybody matters, and yet I think it's important to say that black lives matter, because if everyone matters, and black, li- black lives, black people, through systemic discrimination, through so many different things, are devalued in our society, and I'm sure many of your listeners will disagree with that assessment, but, you know, it's just not something folks are just making up just for the heck of it. Uh, it's really true, and just because I grew up in a privileged way doesn't mean that most people who look like me as a black person grew up this way. And that's why in the last year and a half, I've just been really motivated to join women and men, folks of all backgrounds and gender identities and races to affirm that Black Lives Matter. So I'm really excited to dive in and to explore this idea that if you're able to say all lives matter, then you should be able to say Black Lives Matter. I would think it's really that simple. That, that's that's a that's a great way to put it. I, I, I haven't heard it put that way. Well, why, why do you... Well, we'll dig into that in a minute. Um, Joshua, can you? You've done some articles on this. You've seen some of the pushback in some communities. I saw one article about a, a mostly white church and and some of the uh, thought process. Have Have you seen a difference in the in the way the Black Lives Movement is being adopted by churches? Are there is is it is it harder for a a, a mostly white church to to understand, or do they get more pushback than, than from the article? It sounded like a lot of that was happening at, at the mostly white churches. Well, you know, I, I, one thing I tried to, to really get across in uh, the article is that uh, you know, it is true that uh, primarily white churches are getting pushback, including threats, including vandalism, for publicly supporting the Black Lives Matter movement. Uh, but I think it's really critical not to sort of shift the focus um, or, or, or uh, shift the script onto those churches uh, because what we've seen, you know, no one has gone into uh, a primarily white church uh, in the past year and shot and killed nine people. Um, mm. That happened at uh, a black church, um, Emmanuel uh, AME, um, you know, of course, uh, professed uh, white supremacist, uh, Dylan Roof, um, and there's this history of uh, violence against uh, black social movements, against black churches, uh, that's, I think, really important to keep in focus, um, even as uh, primarily white churches do face, uh, do face backlash. Well, you know, it's interesting because you're right, it, it, it really... It doesn't really have to do with your color as much as it has to do with your experience and whether you have shared experience with people and understanding them. So, I mean, churches could be any of any race or color. If you're in a real affluent area, they might not understand some of the structural issues that are, are working against people. Um, I, I'm going to ask you flat out because I had everybody say this on my page. Um, how could I help promote or talk about a movement that was full of people that were angry and 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 uh, threatening violence. Um, how, how would you guys answer that that statement, or or whether it's true or not? Well, so as I said before, Chris, my hometown, Houston, Texas, had a horrific killing of a police officer um, a few months ago, and just devastating uh, to read about that. You know, near where I grew up. 
And what happened was the killer uh, of this white police officer was a black man. And it didn't matter <laughs> that this, this man who killed um, the officer had, so far as we can tell, no ties to Black Lives Matter whatsoever. The movement was still uh, blamed for it. You know, Melissa Harris Perry, the MSNBC host, she, in one of her books, talks about this idea of fictive tech kinship, this idea that all black people are related and somehow responsible for uh, one another, that we can somehow, like, tell each other what to do and stop killing and all these things. And so Black Lives Matter, for, I think, many conservative pundits and even folks just confused by all the discourse, you know, kind of becomes this catch-all for, like, all black people, that if any black person does anything bad, Black Lives Matter must be to blame. And I think it's, in uh, some cases, intentional, in some cases, accidental uh, discrediting of a movement that's cast as violent. But if you ask the actual leaders, from uh, Netta Elzey to DeRay McKesson to the three founders of Black Lives Matter, nationally three black women, um, Alicia Garza and two others, that this is a nonviolent movement. This is an intense movement. It's passionate. But our, our principles are to be nonviolent. So this idea that we are somehow violent just isn't the case. And the same thing goes with the Ferguson effect that, you know, journalist site after journalist site have disproved this idea that there's somehow more violence against cops. It's simply the data doesn't bear it to be true at all. And it's, I think that this movement challenges the very fabric of which our country is founded. And I think it just really threatens folks to um, this idea that we want to change the status quo. We want to challenge systemic racism in its many forms. And so the, the easy thing to do is to discredit it by saying it's violent when over and over, you know, there may be an intense chant, but a chant is not violent. The chant is, the chant is words. And the last thing I'll say, and I really want to hear what Joshua has to add, um, you know, the last thing is that, you know, the Black Lives Matter activists don't have the guns. We don't have, you know, when we see police, they're the ones who are armed. We are unarmed folks just exercising our rights out there and saying that a different way for our country is possible. We're not the ones with weapons. Well, let me, and I'll, I'll ask Joshua the same thing in just one minute. Let me have an add-on question to that, Kenny. Um, why do you think, and I'm not saying why, did, I'm not going to say this the same way you might have heard it, you know, why doesn't Black Lives Matter? Why doesn't this country... Um, rise up just on the on the on the the lives that are dying every week in in like Chicago. I hear that all the time on the news. You know, oh, this is what. Um, and aside from whether Black Lives Matter should be showcasing that, I mean, why is it that you think that 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 can happen week after week, day after day, and nobody is actually raising it to the national consciousness? Well, I, I think it's a little bit. It's a little bit inaccurate to say that nobody is attempting to raise it. In fact, you know, I would say it goes back to this idea uh, that I mentioned about fictive kinship, Melissa Harris Perry's mm -hmm. language, that, um, that the truth is a lot of people who are engaging with Black Lives Matter, who are passionate about this, also want to see an end to inner city violence. But there are sort of two ways of looking at inner city violence. Either black folks, we are inherently violent, um, or there are systemic factors that put us all in one area and, you know, folk, whether it's about education and mass incarceration and so many factors that leave folks to hopelessness and lack of opportunity that pushes them to violence. And I believe it's the latter, as many of us do. And I think the other thing, Chris, is that um, if we are to say that 
um, if we were to say that we are all responsible for this, it would mean that folks listening in and folks across the country, they would have to see, um, you know, this inner city violence as their problem. You know, some uh, religious folks I've, I've heard call it broadening the we. So who is, when we talk about we, the black people in inner cities uh, shooting each other, do we see them as us? Do we see them, do we see ourselves as somehow responsible for helping that part of society do better and be better? And a lot of times the answer is no. You know, you look at folks like Rudy Giuliani, you know, sort of, he was the mayor of New York City and just totally blamed other black folks for the violence problem. You're the mayor of the city, you know, and, right. and Michael Eric Dyson, scholar, called him out on that. And I think it's just really important that we, if we all as, as members of this society, as citizens of the United States, if we were to, all of us, white, black, rich, poor, were to see ourselves as, as um, cit- fellow citizens to these folks, I think we might see a change in policy instead of just pushing them to one corner and saying, that's their problem, that's black people's problem, and that has nothing to do with me. So that's, that's, if we changed that, I think we'd see a, a dramatic shift uh, in the discourse around inner city violence and around all violence in this country. Yeah, and I want to get to some of the structural reasons that, you know, whoever you are, if you lived in some of those environments and had some of those structural issues, you know, institutional issues keeping you from being able to, to move outside of your scale. I mean, outside right. of your, you know, you know, we all know that you make within 10% of whatever your parents made most of the time. Sure. And, you know, even, even Bill Gates didn't go from, you know, being poor to a billionaire. You know, he went from kind of being at the top a little, you know, even further to the top. So, right. uh, you know, you know, Joshua, what, what are your, th- any thoughts on that? On the, um, on the, the, uh, you know, how, why the, the coverage of this is the way it is. I mean, if you go on Fox News, uh, you, you get a totally different opinion than what I learned from my, matter of fact, I, you know, when I did my research, Kenny, just to let you know, I, I, that was one of the things I said on the page, but I was going to let you say it. I, I didn't find any of the leadership of the founders of three women calling for violence. If all, at all, they were, they were trying to be heard that that's not, you know, that that wasn't them. So I, I, I appreciate you pointing that out. Um, J- Joshua, what, what have you found as you've written on this and, and talked to people out there in the movement um, you know, what, what do you see as the issues of, of, of helping build that collective we? I mean, what are the barriers that, that you see trying to be broke down or, or what they're trying to, what people are trying to accomplish? Mm-hmm. Um, I, I have something, uh, I, I really want to say on that before I do, uh, just something that was mentioned before, mm-hmm. uh, in terms of the, the structural issues around, uh, inner city violence, I think some of Ta-Nehisi Coates' writing um, mm. in the case for reparation, some of his other uh, articles in The Atlantic, his uh, new book, which is amazing, um, Between the World and Me, um, where he talks about these uh, the redlining maps, uh, for example. Um, these, these maps that basically uh, laid out uh, where poor black neighborhoods would be uh, and enforce that through, uh, through banks, through loan processes, uh, through realtors. Uh, I think it's really key to, uh, to look at this history and, uh, and have a really clear eyed view of it. Um, mm. uh, so I, I, you know, I really uh, recommend check out some of that, uh, some of that journalism that's been done. 
Um, it's really uh, incredibly insightful. Um, and, you know, in terms of broadening that we, uh, I actually, I come from uh, sort of the, the opposite social location. I'm, uh, I'm white, um, grew up working class in Georgia, uh, first person in my family to graduate from college. Wow, congratulations. And Harvard at that. Thank you. Wow. Um, Most of the congratulations goes to my mom and my grandma. But but I think a lot of working class whites, especially. Um, You know, I grew up, uh, if you said that someone came from privilege, that meant that they came from money. And so... You know, I have to confess that the first time that I heard this discourse around uh, racial privilege, I bristled a little bit. Um, and, you know, at first it was, it was tough for me to swallow. But I think if you really take other people's experiences seriously, uh, if you really listen to other people, um, then, you know, you have to, you have to take this in. And you know, I think it's really crucial, uh, especially for working class whites, to understand that acknowledging, acknowledging our racial privilege doesn't erase some of the class struggles that we've experienced, some of the, the economic struggles that we've experienced, and Acknowledging those economic struggles doesn't erase our class or our, our race privilege. Um, mm. Those are two. Those are two different things, and those are two things that can exist side by side. That's um, a good point. Yeah, that's a good point. You know, I, I've I, I was mentioning to you guys before the show. I spent five years traveling around the country in my RV, sharing food. Uh, with the homeless is what we ended up doing. We started out just going out every day looking for people that we could help. And that was everything from Meals on Wheels and delivering food to uh, senior citizens. And I got threatened with arrest down in Florida for trying to f- share food with my homeless friends. Um, and it was really enlightening to me because I, you know, I grew up in Orange County in California and came from, you know, uh, money, I guess. I, mean, that, I didn't feel that way at the time, but now I realize how much it was. Um, and I just see... I mean, people have no idea if you grow up in a situation where, where you know, 40,000 people die homeless on the streets every year. About 30 died that year just in Reno that one year that we were there and, and another, what, 78 down in, in Florida. And I knew many of these people because I was out on the streets every day. And people just don't understand if you don't have a family to call, you know, because you need an extra $100 to make the rent or, you know, you lose your job and you don't have a support system in place or people with resources that you're – you're dead in the water. And I, and I guess, um, you know, I, as I look at it, either one of you guys can comment on this. Uh, you know, I, I, when I read a book by Tom Hartman, actually, who was a radio show host, but talked about how, you know, even in the very beginning, though, you know, the wealthy people got the radio airwaves that belonged to the public. I mean, and, and now it made millionaires and ABC, NBC, those are all were public, you know, were public resources and the, and the, and the land and, and everything else. And I guess it was easier for me to see, oh, yeah, poverty's terrible. That's a, that's a systematic structural thing. We got to break people out of poverty. But I, like, 
like you, Joshua, when I, I bristled a bit when, you know, because I wanted to keep it in the present moment. Here's the situations. Here's what it is. And it was only when I actually started to dialogue with people that uh, on Facebook, because I asked, I said, well, well, you know, why does that offend you when people say all lives matter? And I, and I really got an education about it. And I guess, I, I, Kenny, I see the same thing out at this college. You know, a lot of people don't in, in, in Mizzou, you know, people, so, you know, half the reports are, you know, Congratulations! They're making change, and the and you know the exact opposite on another channel that this is ridiculous. These kids are are, are babies today. I mean, the, the stuff they're saying is outrageous. But when the things are happening day after day and day after day, and they don't tell you that even the faculty wanted this guy fired. Apparently, they were all in revolt trying to get him fired for the last year. Um, that it it's not just a single event. It's like enough. You know, <laughs> we're going to do something now. Right. Um, you, you know, any any thoughts on what you see happening on the, on the college campuses and and with that movement? Well, I don't know if you found this in your homework, Chris, but I am a Mizzou alum, uh, class of 2011. Wow! And so this has been yeah. <laughs> so this has been yeah. I've just been following you know obsessively. I knew Jonathan Butler, you know, we were acquaintances, kind of head nod buddies, you might say, um, when, when I was an undergrad there. And, you know, I guess what I would say is that I think one of the, the great or horrible, depending on how you're looking at it, one of the most powerful things that's happened is that black folks and working class, poor white folks have been pitted against each other. I think that is one of the uh, great travesties of U.S. history that, um, this idea that if you win, I lose. And, you know, something that people, I see, you know, uh, good-natured, but, you know, sort of more conservative white folks bring up a lot of times is, you know, well, I did you know, my family didn't own slaves, or most whites didn't own slaves. And so what are we talking about when we talk about systemic racism? You know, what is that? And, um, you know, I think this this wasn't accidental, that what... We, this, the system that we have as a country that, um, we see solidarity primarily along racial lines, it doesn't have to be that way. And by that, I mean that had, you know, decades, you know, centuries ago, had working class whites and, and poor blacks, you know, banded together to really sort of push for change in the way our country is structured and who has power, I think we would have seen a very, uh, different history play out. The other thing I would add is, is that, you know, the importance of, as Joshua mentioned, Tennessee Coates' writing and the importance of writing like Coates and Isabel Wilkerson and, and so many folks is, is that I think we need to own our history that we are taught in school by, you know, good natured, good hearted teachers. We're never, nevertheless taught myths that really, I think, you know, get in the way of us understanding the realities of the country in which we live. That if we are taught that, you know, the civil rights movement fixed it all, if we're taught all these things that we sort of can't grapple because, like, you know, what are you complaining about? That we can see, and I think that that allows us to see, you know, how could Joshua, you know, um, being the first in his, his family to go to college, graduate from college, and me, you know, my grandmother... Uh, black woman, you know, the, one of the first black women in the state of Arkansas to get a doctorate in the mid-60s. Um, wow. How could it be that, you know, in some areas, Joshua has more privilege than I do? You know, that we are so bad at understanding how that might be the case. Um, but when you look at things that, that Joshua mentioned, redlining, as Coates has pointed to us, 
um, so many systemic inequalities when it comes to education, when it comes to people being punished um, based on their race, even if the crime is the same. If their race is different, their punishment is more severe if they're black or Latino. Um, you know, it, when we don't understand these things, it's like we can't even talk to each other. And my hope is that, is above all, that in the work that I do, you know, my hope is that, is that unarmed black and brown folks will stop being killed, um, of course. But above all, I want us to grapple with the reality in which we live, that we have been taught myths that are just so detrimental to our, um, to our coming together as, as not only citizens of this country, but as inhabitants of this earth. That when we just don't understand each other's realities, for folks right now to look at, the, at what's going on with Syria and refugees and to look and to call themselves Christians and yet to um, just behave so in opposition to actual Christian values is heartbreaking to me. And it just shows that we don't, uh, we don't have the, the education, the knowledge, the understanding of our current reality. And that's something that in my own small way I really want to change and I hope that folks will begin to grapple with our history and our reality. Would you say that's the goal of the Black Lives Matter movement? I mean, for people to say, you know, some people say, well, what do you want me to do about it? I mean, okay, everybody's marching. What, you know, what, what, what would you say if somebody were to ask you, what does the movement want to see happen? Is it just what you well, said? Well, I think first, first of all, the movement, you know, it, People ask, what are your aims? You know, kind of the same right, right, critique right. that was aimed at, that was sort of pointed at Occupy. What are you trying to do? And I think folks um, would say, first of all, stop killing us. And that's, you know, that's a very simple and yet challenging phrase because someone will say, well, I didn't, I didn't kill you. And this is where sort of my faith, my Unitarian Universalist faith history comes in, that when, uh, when Dr. Martin Luther King, he gave the eulogy for the Reverend James Reeb uh, in 1965, Reed was a white Unitarian from Boston who came down, and this was depicted in the movie Selma. Um, he was called a priest in the movie. He, when Reed was killed by, by white supremacists in Alabama, in Selma, you know, King asked the question, who killed Dr. Reed? And, or Reverend Reed, I should say. Who killed Reverend Reed? And, uh, you know, so the answer is simple. A few sick, demented, misguided men. Then, he, then Dr. King asked, what killed Reverend Reed? And he said from there, you know, the answer grows. And in his eulogy of James Reeb, King sort of called into question, called to task, uh, white clergy, moderate black clergy, in the same way that he sort of did with the letter from Birmingham jail. And sort of, so even though, you know, even though it was two or three, I forget which, two or three uh, white men in Alabama who killed James Reeb, he sort of indicted the much larger system of folks who, you know, who remain silent, folks who asked King and, um, and Diane Nash and so many others to slow down, to be more patient in the face of horrific bigotry. You know, that, that he, when, he, when King indicted that larger system, I think that's something that the Black Lives Matter movement is taking now. And our larger ask is, first of all, stop killing us. And when we say... There's very few, you know, there's a few police officers um, and, you know, other folks pulling the trigger or, you know, sort of holding the baton and, and using the baton, whatever it may be. But there's much larger, those of us who are sort of condoning it by, with our silence, uh, saying that's okay. 
that, you know, well, they, in sort of like, well, they must have done something, surely. Uh, sort of like indicting black folks who were unarmed victims. And, you know, the last thing I'll say uh, on this topic is, is just that, you know, whatever, you know, when a black person or a Latino, Latina person, Native American person is, is killed by police, so often the question is, what did they do? And whether they stole something or even rushed the police officer or had a record or whatever it may be, I think the simple question that many of my fellow Black Lives Matter activists from Seattle to Miami and elsewhere are asking is, should they be dead? That simple question, should they be dead, with, you know, that this idea that we can, that police officers can kill people, especially unarmed people, but any people, uh, sort of without, without trial, without recourse, and too often without punishment, is a horrifying reality that if we are silent, um, you know, and just sort of passively accepting that, then I think all of us, whatever our race, we do hold some responsibility for that. And I think that is really what Black Lives Matter is trying to push forward right now. Right. So we, so one, educate people so that they can actually speak up and, and, and take a stand. You know, I, I, I'll be honest with you, as I announced this show, I, I, I got intimidated by white people. <laughs> they were telling me that, that, you know, how dare you do that? I'm like, oh my God, I couldn't believe that. And, no, and everybody thought they knew everything about it. They didn't need to see anything else. They've sure. seen a two minute thing. You know, a thirty-second clip on TV, and that's that's the whole movement to them, and and it, and I guess like you, Joshua, um, you know, as I, I bristled a bit at first, but once I dug into it, I guess I'll ask you, Joshua. You know, we we've talked here both all of us about the the you know the the institutional issues or the systemic issues. Um, as you started to look at it, Joshua, what what was it that you learned or discovered, or that you think might be interesting to other people that 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 kind of made you not bristle anymore? What what was the shift or the discovery that you made? Well, I, you know, for, for me, and, and I can only speak from my own personal experience on this, um, I think the two, the two most valuable things uh, that I've learned um, over, over years is, is, is first, you know, as, as a white person, as a man, as a straight person, when when people who aren't white are you know, male, straight, gender normative, when they talk about their experiences, when they talk about what their lives are like, how they experience things, uh, believe them. Hmm. Just believe them. Um, give that uh, basic credit, that basic benefit of the doubt, that basic belief. Um, and secondly, um, for me personally, and I think this goes for organizations, institutions as well, uh, is to lean into criticism, um, mm-hmm. to really lean into criticism uh, because the defensiveness, personally, but especially within organizations, institutions, uh, it's very easy. Uh, it's very, very easy, uh, in many ways understandable. Uh, but, you know, I'll, I'm, I'm sort of a journalism nerd, so I have to plug the film uh, Spotlight, uh, which just came out. Really amazing. 
really amazing film on uh, some great investigative reporting. Uh, and you look at something like the Catholic Church's abuse scandal. Uh, according to the movie, and I don't know if this uh, statistic is solid, it was maybe 6% of priests or less uh, actually engaged in abuse. Wow, but it was a lot. <laughs> uh, but but it was the um, entire yeah, and that's still a huge number, right? Uh, you know, a small percentage yeah. relative to the whole. But it was you know, the whole institution, uh, and and not just the institution, other institutions right. around it, uh, enabling it. Right. Right. And, I think that's that's crucial, uh, not just for conversations about uh, race, but for a lot of other conversations as well. Um, think about the conversation around uh, rape and sexual assault that's happened um, over the past couple of years, gotten uh, many more headlines. Uh, and the same holds true there, uh, where uh, even if you have uh, a relatively small um, still horrifyingly large, but relatively small number of perpetrators. Um, the, um, you know, it takes, it takes so many more, it, it kind of, it takes, it takes everyone to turn the other way, really. Right. Well, you know, you've covered a lot of different issues, you know, on humanity and national security, and and uh, I've seen you know more than one article on 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 this topic as well. Are there any common things you see? I mean, I'll let you. You know, you've got a master's in divinity, so we'll get a little philosophical here with you. <laughs> is there is there uh, is there any common things that you see between these conflicts between the 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 unchristian like acts being being directed towards the refugees or the the Black Lives Matter movement trying to be marginalized or 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 put aside or the you know some of these other. I mean, what are your thoughts on on why this is happening? Or is it something that's just always been along, around and we just never addressed it? You know, I, I don't know if I have any sort of grand answers or if I can uh, pinpoint one thing. I'm a national security journalist, which tends to make you uh, sort of a Calvinist. You sort of begin to believe in the <laughs> right. depravity of human nature. <laughs> right. <laughs> Especially if you've, if you've hey, spent man. enough time with a CIA torture report. But, <laughs> right. Uh, Right, exactly. But, uh, you know, I think there is real value. It's, it, it, Ta-Nehisi Coates says this in um, Between the World and Me as well, and it, it really uh, hit home for me. It's not always fun uh, to have clear eyes about some of these things, to really... Mm try um, in as imperfect a way as, as you can, but to, to really try to, to look at these things unflinchingly. But I think at the end of the day, uh, it's more rewarding. I think it's, um, even if it's not always 
superficially a, a happier life. I think it's a better life. And I think it's something that we have to do uh, if we don't want to keep um, terrorizing each other. That's a that's a good point. I, I guess Kenny, I'll ask you. He, he, that you know, Joshua brings up some good points about us. You know, being willing to to see the the real reality of what's going on. We've mentioned on this show a couple of times now institutional challenges or systemic issues. Um, I, I would be remiss if I if I didn't give our listeners a chance that, that truly, I mean, might not, because I never see it reported. Nobody goes that deep on any of these two minute, you know, shows that you see on everything, um, you know, is the, the underlying systemic issue. If they do, they're usually pulling a couple of statistics to try and make their own point. They already had their mind made up. So Kenny, could I mean, maybe for those people that aren't familiar with or haven't been, uh, you know, affected by any of those, so they've never seen it in their life. You know, what what are some of those systemic I- issues in our society that are making it more difficult for Black people to have the same equal treatment as others? So, you know, Chris, the 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 way I would start is by um, pointing people to. One of my favorite TED Talks uh, by Chimamanda Adichie, uh, The Danger of a Single Story. And in it, she talks about how people have a sort of single story about Africa and the whole continent. And, um, you know, that actually it's many different stories. And that so often what we do is we take the, the folks in these sort of conversations, they take the, the successful black athlete they watch on TV um, or President Obama, or their, you know, black friend who is successful, and they sort of extrapolate that onto an entire race of people. And um, so often in this discourse, we talk about individual relationship and individual communication, or one person. And what we're being asked, I think what is being asked of us is to sort of look beyond the one story or the few stories we know to a larger truth that in the society, the progress we've made, it is possible for, um, for you know, black folks, for anybody to succeed, uh, that we have a president with a, with a middle name Hussein. I mean, that speaks to the progress we've made. And yet, um, we, that can be true, and you know, we need to allow for nuance here, and we can have a, uh, a systemic problem. And some of those really have to do with education. You know, we talk about um, an opportunity that, you know, sort of um, were, your, were your parents or your grandparents or your aunt and uncle or uncle and uncle or whoever, were they around to help you with your homework? Were they, um, did the teachers sort of assume you were a troublemaker or not? Uh, sort of these things where nobody asked, you know, a, a black person who's 10 didn't ask to be assumed that they were a troublemaker because they're rambunctious, um, but a white kid who's, you know, in fifth grade and, and kind of bouncing off the wall is just a fifth grader who's off the wall. Right. A black kid who's like that is a young criminal in the eyes of too many. And, you know, I think what, uh, what's being asked of us is that we sort of be aware that that's a thing that, that sort of when, when that, they may not be able to articulate it that way, but if this, you know, this 10 year old black girl is seen as, as a, as a problem, you know, some part of her is aware of that. 
And that can, that can mean that the, the 16-year-old young black woman that comes out of that black 10-year-old girl, um, you know, sort of sees herself as a problem. And that's, you know, we sort of put that on her or put that on her parents or, or, or whoever. But that's actually on all of us that, that um, we have sort of left, the, left folks, too many folks behind that we sort of accept our own biases as the truth when in reality they're sometimes true and sometimes not. Uh, some Asian folks are good at math and some aren't. You know, so we need to beware always of the single story. Beware always of just assuming uh, something about a person based on the tiny bit of information we have, which is usually baseless and based in race or gender. Um, and I think if we look beyond the individual story into a broader truth and really sort of, you know, I guess engage in sort of healthy skepticism, I think we can find ourselves um, with compassion that we may say uh, of folks who, you know, are making unfortunate choices that, that we are all somehow responsible, that it's not just about the individual, but it's about the collective. And as I mentioned earlier, that idea of broadening the we, I think, would, would get us a long way that, um, to really challenging and, and facing some of the big problems that face our country and face our larger world. Do you see that, you know, this being successful in broadening that? I mean, it seems to me that, I, you know, it's, I, I, first of all, I can't believe it's so controversial that, that people don't want to be killed. I mean, <laughs> I can't, I, I, it just baffles me when I, I see some of the pundits on TV and, and some of the things they say. Um, I mean, how do you feel that we're doing as a society? Well, well, I think the reason why such a statement like Black Lives Matter is controversial, Chris, is because there's an underlying thing that, that, frankly, none of us asked for, and that I don't think uh, white folks who say this are even consciously aware of, but that if somebody uh, who is Latino, Latina, or Black, Native, uh, was killed by police, that they must have deserved it. That sort of when we accept the worst notions of people of color in this country, we sort of say like, yeah, well, if they were, you know, we just sort of trust, we trust the system and we denounce the individual from a disadvantaged area and we let it go. And I think what happens, and I see this from so many folks, so many white people, especially who I work with and, and see in Denver and, and in Boston and elsewhere, who once you make that switch, once you, sort of say, you know, I'm going to see people as individuals, but also as part of a larger truth, as part of a larger problematic system. I think what starts to happen is you find compassion. You find compassion and you sort of speak into that and live into that larger truth uh, that says we are not our best day and we are not our worst day. That somebody who has tons of talent may not have been able to access it because of circumstances far beyond their control and that somebody who may not be that talented was able to use the best of what they had because they had every advantage and there's all sorts of other truths. So I have seen um, on smaller scales in church systems, in denominational systems, I've seen this work and I believe that if we made a larger shift to confronting our own history, uh, to in, in broadening that, we, I think we could see an incredible shift in this country and that's why, even though sometimes it feels hopeless watching social media feeds in weeks like this week with 
governor after governor saying, you know, supposedly that they're not going to accept refugees. Um, that's why I still have hope because I've seen it. I've seen people shift and I encourage all those listening uh, to really challenge themselves to make that shift, to look beyond that single story that Adichie talked about. Yeah, that's amazing to me. I was watching that this morning that, that, you know, the governors across the country saying they're not going to accept, you know, good news is that most people are saying that they don't, you know, legally they can't do that according to the Constitution. It's Um, an empty gesture. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, you know, the the, the good news there, but it it also really just... uh, um, blows me away that 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 <laughs> we're the ones that created the whole situation <laughs> i mean right. the people can't they can't even remember yesterday much less you know 10 or 15 yep. years ago i mean as americans how can we not understand that this is all happening because of a set of circumstances that that you know we put in the motion and, and it, it just really yep. blows me away you guys i want to really thank you for getting on the game first of all this is a great show for me because truly i i felt myself being uncomfortable so i, I went online and and looked for some of the best articles the best resources that i could find and that led me to joshua and and then yourself uh kenny through joshua so i i couldn't be more pleased with the conversation that we got to have here today that i i really feel went you know deeper than what people are getting in their in their two three minute news stories and i hope everybody does take up the challenge to 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 look at your life and how you can help create a, a bigger sense of we as our guests discussed here today. Uh, the links, the books, the the spotlight, everything you heard mentioned on the show, if you're listening to the recorded version or downloaded it after the live broadcast, um, the links will be right below the podcast. Um, Kenny, how can people get a hold of you or find you online if they want to read some of the wonderful articles that I've, I've read uh, that you've written? Well, first they can go to ueworld.org. Uh, that's the Unitarian Universalist Association magazine that I write for, kind of speaking to uh, what's happening in the faith in our individual churches across the country. Um, and they can also go to KennyWiley.com, which is my personal blog. And I write about, um, you know, sports and feminism. I write about Black Lives Matter. And I write about depression, which is another big, uh, passionate topic of mine. So yeeworld.org or KennyWiley.com, best way to find me. That is great. Thank you. And and Joshua, what about yourself? How can people connect with uh, some of your work? I, I I started reading through some of your articles. Fascinating, the, the different things that you've gotten into, breaking the Bridgegate story out there before all the other media and, and your other articles as well. How, how can people connect with you? Uh, so people can connect with me at joshuaeaton.net. Um, that will link to my stories at other publications, Al Jazeera, Christian Science Monitor, uh, and the um, so the Bridgegate story uh, I should say was uh, a wonderful reporter at uh, Spare Change News where I was uh, formerly editor in chief uh, Alex Ramirez and I would definitely encourage people uh, I'm I'm no longer uh, editor there but definitely encourage people to check out Spare Change News a great street newspaper here in Boston yeah. uh, that's uh, SpareChangeNews.net yeah now that's the one where the, the the people that are on the street can actually resell that and and earn some money on the streets is that correct is that the right one i'm thinking of or no uh that's right that's right yeah, uh, yeah. we um so we produce the paper um good journalism but it's also a way for people who are homeless near homeless at risk of homelessness to supplement their income that's great that's awesome well, gentlemen, thank you so much for being on Up Close today. I really appreciate it. I'm going to take a commercial break and close out the show with some announcements. And um, and thank you for being you in the world. The world could definitely use more people like you two gentlemen we had today. Thank you. Thanks, Chris. And thank you, Joshua. Uh, thank you. And uh, thank you, Chris, for having us.
You're, you're very welcome. Folks, we'll be right back after this break. Would it be crazy if you just stopped everything, packed your bags and left for a week, a month, a year? What if you left for two years? Would people think you'd lost your mind? What if you were going far away to help in a village on the edge of the Gobi Desert? A village crowded with Buddhist temples, not skyscrapers. A place where there isn't a word for recluse, but a thousand words for community. Would it be crazy to go 5,000 miles from home? To spend time with people the rest of the world only reads about? To build libraries and fill them with stories? Prepare a meal with food you helped grow? To teach children and learn a thing or two about yourself? Would that be crazy? Peace Corps. Life is calling. How far will you go? To find out more, call 1-800-424-8580 or visit peacecorps.gov. Do you know a nonprofit that could use more money to accomplish their mission? Are you working for a charitable cause right now and need funding to do more? Nonprofitfundraising.com is dedicated to helping nonprofits and charities raise the funds they need. Discover the best fundraising ideas of 2015 and compare your fundraising results with others. Learn how to grow your organization and connect with more supporters at nonprofitfundraising.com. That's nonprofitfundraising.com. Welcome back to Up Close with Chris Tinney. To call in and be part of the show, dial 1-866-472-5788 from anywhere in North America. That's 1-866-472-5788. And now, back to the show. Well, we come to the end of another episode, another show up close. And uh, what an awesome show today. Thank you for sharing this, for listening to this, and being part of this today. A very special thank you to Kenny Wiley and Joshua Eaton, who uh, spent the hour with us today. Folks, it doesn't end here. Uh, you know, if we all just get on here and, 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 you know, pat each other on the back that we're educating ourselves, but we don't do anything about it, even if it's just think about it, uh, then, it then I've failed as your host of this show, because this show is to inspire you to action by introducing you to the people like these two that are out there on the front lines helping create change, report change, educate people so they can change. And that's what we're all about. So thank you for listening to the show. And don't forget to ask yourself, who can you help today? This is the end of the show. You don't have to let the conversation end now. Visit ChrisTinney.com to learn more about today's topic. Listen to past shows and connect with like-minded people. Up Close with Chris Tinney is broadcast live every Tuesday at 5 p.m. Pacific, 8 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Variety Channel and rebroadcast online and throughout North America in select markets. Thanks for listening. Thanks for sharing, and we'll see you next week on Up Close with Chris Tinney.